Good morning. Nice and loud. It's not often we get to start a new book. Seems like uh, we've spent uh, over a year in the book of Romans. I'm not sure if it's been quite that long. But uh, today we get to start a new book. And the author of that book is in the first slide, I think. Uh, let's see if anyone can identify him for us. Jeremiah? Uh, no, it's not Jeremiah. There's a hint, there's a creature in there besides for the man. Yes, yeah? Why do you say Peter? Okay, yeah, very good. What's, what, what, uh, what, uh, what's the story behind the picture? Right, very good. And, and there's a verse that goes with that. Um, Jesus says to him in Luke 22, uh, the Lord said to Simon, uh, the Lord, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. We were... Uh, singing the song, Faith is the Victory. Faith is the Victory. And uh, yet uh, Peter was sorely tested uh, during this time. He, he thought he was uh, the greatest apostle. He said, Lord, even if everybody else denies you, I will not deny you. I will, I will stick to you even, even to, de to the death. And yet when uh, Jesus was being tried and a servant girl approached Peter and said, you're not also one of his disciples. Uh, Peter denied it. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. So he, he wasn't able to live up to his own expectation of, uh, of how spiritual he was, and that ended up with him uh, weeping. We're told that, Jesus, that uh, Peter left that, uh, that place and he wept. Uh, he was tried. He was tested. And yet... Um, Jesus said to him, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Did Peter's faith fail? Uh, no, no. It was a low time. It was a difficult time. We might say it was a trial he went through. Um, and yet he came out of that trial. And Jesus said to him, uh, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen, encourage them. Jesus knew that the other believers... Uh, would also suffer trials in their lives. Certainly the other apostles were going at that time through a similar trial to that of Peter. They didn't deny the Lord, but they still fled when uh, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. Uh, they doubted who Jesus was. Um, and, uh, and Peter uh, hopefully encouraged them with the encouragement he received from the Lord and, uh, and today, and for the next uh, several months, Peter will encourage us. Uh, he recognizes uh, that trials are part of the Christian life. We would like to think that uh, once uh, you become a believer in the Lord Jesus, life should be easy, uh, and yet it's not. And uh, we'll find out uh, from this book, as well as many other places in the New Testament, that trials are part of God's design for 
the believer. And uh, in this portion, we will find out one of the reasons of why God allows us to go through trials. So pay attention and, uh, and share with me at the end if, uh, if you uh, missed or if you understood the purpose for trials we have in today's uh, passage. With, with that, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we will cover, Lord willing, verses 1 through 12, uh, the first epistle written by Peter. Peter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And we will look into them this morning, Lord willing. First, Peter, as he uh, refers to the believers, is using an unusual term. If you remember, as we were studying the letter to the Romans, Paul letters to the Romans, and probably just about all of Paul's letters greet believers as saints. What does saints mean? Separated ones, Separated ones uh, or holy ones. Uh, yeah, God sets us apart. Uh, when he saves us, he makes us holy. And that's the term Paul likes to use. He calls believers saints, if you want to. If I want to, I can call you guys saints. That would be a correct description if you are believers in the Lord Jesus. In this passage, uh, Peter uses instead the word pilgrims, or even 
pilgrims of the dispersion. What does pilgrims mean? Wanderers, okay. I think that's close. One's on a journey, right? Uh, literally, the word in, in Greek means uh, aliens that dwell by our side. Uh, we might um, think of people who come from another country and being with us as aliens, except that most of those people are uh, intending to become citizens. Right? They would like this to be their country. It just takes a certain amount of time. A pilgrim would be one who is not really trying to become a citizen of this country. I think uh, Don used this illustration of himself. I think you said you're a, a legal alien, a resident alien? Resident alien. So Don has no particular desire to become an American citizen, but he's happy to dwell in our midst, and we're happy to have him uh, in our midst. Uh, so a pilgrim is literally one who, who is dwelling. He, he'll be dwelling here, but he doesn't consider this place to be his home, right? And the word dispersion in the Greek diaspora kind of means the same thing. It means you've, you've been uh, taken away from your own home. Often we will use that term as Jews. We will use that to Jews dwelling outside of the land of Israel. We, we, we think of Israel as our home country, and so we are in the diaspora. We are those who have been scattered abroad in the rest of the world, but still thinking of Israel as our homeland. Um, how is this an accurate description of believers in the Lord Jesus? Why are we called pilgrims? And an answer for that might be found in Hebrews 11. If you remember, Hebrews 11 is often called the whole of faith because it shows the kind of faith that Old Testament believers had. And in this particular passage, it describes the faith of the, um, the fathers, if you would, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as they left their homeland in Mesopotamia and came to what at that time was the land of Canaan. And in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith. They had faith not having received the promises, meaning God promised the land for them, and they haven't yet received the land. They were living in it, but it wasn't theirs yet. There were other people, other nations living in that land. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in tents. They didn't look at the land, they leave that as their home, and they didn't really want to go back to Mesopotamia either because God has called them, and they believed he had a better place prepared for them. And that's the way we are as believers. Uh, we, we live here on earth. I, I own a home, or you could rent a home, uh, 
but I don't look at this as my home. I look at heaven as my home. And I'm just passing through this place. That's a good title for believers. So I can call you saints or I can call you pilgrims if you are believers in the Lord Jesus. And Peter calls us pilgrims. Uh, I have here a map behind me of the region that Paul, that sorry, Peter is referring. I'm going to keep saying Paul. Please forgive me after going through Romans. Uh, Peter is referring to specifically the pilgrims who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And that's roughly the region that is Turkey today. It was one of the early areas the church went into. The church started here in what is called Palestine or Israel, and then it moved up to Syria. And then from Syria, it went into what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, But not critical, because it really describes believers everywhere. There's nothing in this passage that really is limited to that specific group of believers. It really applies to all believers in all time. Uh, Peter immediately goes into an encouragement. Uh, He reminds them of their special relationship with God. He says that they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, meaning God chose us. He chose us. He chose us before the foundation of the earth. Right? We are in sanctification of the Spirit. That speaks of the work of the Spirit in our lives. It started before I was saved. The Spirit convicted me of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Um, He opened my eyes to understand uh, the gospel. After I became a believer in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit came into me, and he now enables me to live the Christian life in a way that honors the Lord Jesus. So I am, we are, in sanctification of the Spirit. Spirit. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What did God the Father elect us to? What does the Holy Spirit achieve in our lives? It brings us into obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. When we started worshiping the Lord together this morning, Matt pointed out uh, the names or titles of the Lord Jesus. He is often referred to him as Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior. And we see it in this passage. He is Lord, right? I've been chosen by God for Jesus to be my Lord. I've been sanctified by the Spirit for Jesus to be my Lord, for him to, to lead me, for him to rule me, for him to tell me what to do, for me to follow him. Jesus is Lord. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ talks about having the value of the blood of the Lord Jesus assigned uh, to me. In the Old Testament, when they sacrificed an animal, after they sacrificed the animal, they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it either on an object or on a person. And that means that the value of the blood was being applied to that person. Jesus died for my sins. He paid with his life, because that was my debt for my sins. I owed death to God for my sin. But Jesus died in my place, and the value of that death was applied to me, if you would, by sprinkling of the blood. That's the imagery, so that now I am saved. I'm forgiven of my sins. He is Savior. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Savior. 
And it's neat how we have the three persons of the Godhead all wrapped up uh, in this passage. It reminds me of another verse in John chapter 10. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And it speaks of the, of the relationship we have with God. I have kind of a slide to maybe picture that. Jesus speaking of no one can take them out of my hand. Just imagine this is you. You're the little child. And, uh, and Jesus is saying no one can take them out of my hand. He He's laid hold of me. I'm his sheep. I follow him. Right? And he says, no one can take him out of my hand. If I'm holding onto my child's hand and we go into the ocean together and the waves come and sweep my child's hand from under him, I will hold on to my child. I'm not going to let my child fall. Right? No one can take me out of the Lord's hand. But then also the father is holding me. So now I have this God the Son holding one hand. I have God the Father holding... Can anything take me out? (laughs) The biggest wave in the world won't wash me away when they're holding on to me. But now add the Holy Spirit to it, as in the gospel, inside the letter of Peter. The Holy Spirit is in me. How solid am I in my relationship with God? And the same, same is true for you. And that's what Peter wants us, as he's encouraging them, remember, we started with the thought that Jesus wants Peter to encourage us in our trials. And the first uh, thing we need for our encouragement is remembering our, our relationship with God and just how solid that relationship is. Nothing can take you out of your relationship with God. If you are, as it says in this passage, uh, in him, one in him. And Jesus says, I and my Father are one. The Holy Spirit is also. That's the Trinity. Um, uh, second, in this passage, uh, Peter reminds them of the hope that we have in God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My uh, daughter, Eliana, is in college now, and uh, she uh, met this week an old friend, a kindergarten friend, uh, someone she knew in kindergarten. And uh, then that friend left and went to Korea. And then apparently her friend came back, I think, a year or two ago and is now going to college at the same college my daughter is at, and uh, she recognized my daughter. And my daughter didn't recognize her because uh, this friend from kindergarten, I think of her as a cute five-year-old, is now, has uh, tattoos everywhere, body piercings everywhere. Um, She invited my daughter to visit with her in the dorms. And in in her room, there's four guys, playing video games, uh, vaping. I don't know if, what, if you know what vaping is now. And um, uh, this girl, 
uh, told my my daughter that she's involved in you know in inappropriate relationships, and uh, and I was just sad to hear that. But I think back to my college days uh, before I was a believer, and um, my life wasn't much better than that. I, I didn't have tattoos or body piercings, uh, but I'm not proud of the kind of things I was doing in college. And, and uh, in a sense, it's understandable because this world will tell you that um, there, there is no purpose for your life. And uh, there's nothing really to be looking forward uh, in your life. You're just going to get old and die, right? And then after death, uh, there's nothing. So why not live it up, right? <laughs> I mean, if it makes you happy to get tattoos, get tattoos. Makes you happy to get body piercings, get body piercings. If it makes you happy to be in in, in uh, inappropriate relationship, get into inappropriate relationships. Whatever makes you feel good. Um, and yet, uh, we're told here that uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. When I was saved, my way of looking at life completely changed. I no longer looked at the moment, you know, can I get drunk? Can I do this? Can I do that? I was now looking to the future. I was saved. I knew that after I was going to die, I was going to go and be with God in heaven, right? And that gives me a new purpose to live, right? It changes my outlook on life so that you could describe it as being born, begotten again. Now, we are born again in another sense of it too, right? That God gives us a new nature. But in this passage particularly, we're born again to a living hope, to looking at the future that God has prepared for us. It has an interesting phrase that says, he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How is it that it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're begotten again? Um, I have this quote by Albert Barnes, and he says that, he explains it this way, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the foundation of our hope. It was a confirmation of what he declared as truth when he lived. Jesus taught us many things. How do we know that everything Jesus told us is true? Because he rose from the dead. It was a proof of the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. How do we know that there is life after death, death, because Jesus rose from the dead. It was a pledge that all who are united to him will be raised up. How do I know that I myself will be raised from the dead? Because Jesus rose from the dead, right? And I've placed my faith in him and his promise to raise me as well. Now, Peter continues as he describes this living hope, it says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time.
time. Uh, the scripture often refers to the fact that we are heirs of God and that we have an inheritance uh, coming to us. Uh, I probably have an inheritance coming to me. I don't know that for sure because I haven't seen the will of my parents. They might have crossed my name out. Uh, but there, there's reason to hope that when my parents die, which I hope is not going to happen anytime soon, uh, that I will actually receive something. I don't know exactly what it is. And the scriptures are not incredibly detailed as to what our inheritance in Christ will be. I can't say, okay, you're getting so many you know, of this and so many of that, and this is what you inherit. I cannot tell you that. But in this passage, some description of our inheritance in Christ is given. We are told that it is incorruptible. So what does it mean for something to be corruptible? It means uh, for its value to be uh, destroyed. Uh, maybe I want to give you uh, a car, and uh, I'll, I'll do the best I can. I'll keep it in, in the garage and, and hope that nothing bad happens to it. But it will probably still rust, right? Things in this world don't last. Uh, forever, and so it might turn out that the inheritance I have for you, or my parents have for me, uh, will lose its value, right? It's not, it's not going to actually be any good by the time I get it. Maybe they have a million dollars set aside for me, probably not, but we might go through a period of hyperinflation, and all of a sudden a million dollars is not going to mean that much, right? So our inheritance here may not keep its value. And the same is true, but this is, this is not true for the inheritance that God has for us. The inheritance that God has for us is incorruptible. It cannot lose its value. Uh, next, it says it's undefiled. Uh, usually defiled means when something becomes uh, unattractive. Uh, maybe my father has a car for me in his garage, but he doesn't keep his garage uh, uh, insulated enough, and, and rats go in there, and the rats might uh, make their nest in the car, and by the time I'm ready to have the car, I don't want to step into that car. It's been defiled. I don't want it anymore. Uh, again, this cannot happen to our heavenly inheritance. Right? It, can't, it, it is undefiled. Nothing is going to spoil and diminish its value in our eyes. And it does not uh, fade away. Again, uh, certain things uh, might seem really attractive for us when we first get it. Uh, we take this uh, shiny uh, toy out of its package on Christmas Day, and the kids are so excited about it. Uh, but over time, uh, it fades. It uh, loses its glamour, loses its sparkle. And even though its functionality might be just as good a year or 10 years later, the kids, ah, I don't want it. Uh, not so with the inheritance uh, we have in heaven, right? It's going to keep its sparkle. What God has for us is so wonderful. In 10 years or 10,000 years, we're not going to get tired of it. It's going to be just as wonderful uh, for us. Now, uh, the other thing we see about this um, inheritance, it's reserved uh, in heaven uh, for you. So my, my parents may have a great intention, and they may have stored this you know, all this thing uh, are for me so that 
uh, when, when I come into my inheritance, I can enjoy all the things they have, uh, but my parents are limited in what they can do. Maybe a fire will come and burn the house down, uh, or the, the bank uh, will go bad, and all the money invested in the bank will disappear. Right? But not so with the inheritance that we have. Uh, it's reserved by God. Right? Nothing is going to cause me to lose my heavenly inheritance. And then finally, the last thing that can happen is I might die before my parents die. And I will never come into my earthly inheritance. Not so uh, for my heavenly inheritance. We're told that uh, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God will preserve me, right? I'm not going to miss out on what God has for me because he not only preserves my inheritance, but he will preserve me uh, to enjoy the inheritance he has for me. So God has given us a hope in heaven, and that's one of the things Peter is reminding us of to encourage us as we might be going through trials at this time. There is an inheritance for you, in heaven. Um, next, Peter explains uh, the purpose of the trials we go through. We do go through trials. Um, in verse 6 it says, uh, In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by uh, various trials. It seems that the believers in Peter's day were suffering from persecution. We will see some allusions to that uh, later on in this um, epistle. But uh, we could suffer from all kinds of trials. It may not be uh, persecution. It could be uh, as, as we get older or not get older, uh, we could uh, become ill. We might lose our, our health. Um, life, life might not be as, as pleasant as it was uh, in, our, in our younger days. It could be um, that uh, we might uh, lose uh, financial, uh, financial wealth. Um, may, you may uh, have your car damaged, and all of a sudden you have to buy a new car. Or... Uh, uh, a leak might happen in your house, and you have to spend your money uh, repairing uh, that leak. Or you may have a comfortable job, and, uh, and a layoff happens, and you lo no longer. I mean, these are all genuine trials uh, that we as believers can go through. It could be a relationship. Maybe uh, a loved one gets sick uh, or die or, or leaves you. Right? I mean, those are all real uh, genuine trials that are difficult for us uh, to go through, and we have to go uh, through them. Why? Why does God allow these trials in our lives? Paul says, sorry, Peter says, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, the trials God brings into our lives, there's, there's more than one purpose in the Bible. Right? This is not the only one, but the one Peter points out is he wants to reveal our faith. It might be easy. Somebody 
uh, will share the gospel with you, and you understand that God loves you, and uh, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, and that by placing your faith in him, he will save you from your sins and give you a place and an inheritance in heaven. That, those are wonderful news. And you might say, amen. You know, I want it. I, I'll believe. That's the kind of news I like to hear, right? Um, and, and you might be frank and tell others that you believe in Jesus and what it is he did for you. But then a trial comes your way, right? One of these things we mentioned, uh, financial or, or health or relational, and, uh, and your friend says, hey, you told me that God loves you. You're his uh, number one child, and why, why is this happening to you, right? And these things challenge our faith, like what's going on? And uh, for you to continue in your faith and say, you know, God, I don't know why you've allowed this trial into my life, but I am not... Um, going to, to turn my back on you. I, I, I've trusted in you, and I'm going to continue to trust in you through this trial that you bring my way. Uh, perhaps the, the greatest example we have with that, of that in the scriptures is a man named Job that lived um, probably before Abraham's uh, time. And the scripture says this about him. Uh, in Job chapter 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, So the Lord himself appreciated Job, and he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Right? So that is uh, what God thought of Job. He, he really appreciated uh, Job's faith in him. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him around his household, and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan says, well, for sure, yes. For sure, Job believes in you, right? You've given him everything, right? And protected him from all harm. But... Take away everything you've given to him. And let's see how faithful Job is. And uh, God allows this to happen. Amazingly, God allows Satan to take everything from Job. He loses his wealth, right? All his, his possessions. Uh, he loses his relationships, if you would. His, his children are all killed. And then, finally, he loses his health. He's afflicted with a terrible skin disease. And uh, his friends come and tell Job how terrible of a sinner he is. And that's the reason of why he is suffering from such trials. <laughs> right? I mean, that's Job. Right? And then we can read the next uh, 38 or 39 chapters and see how Job is dealing with this trial in his life, but, um, you know, wonderfully, uh, in, in the middle of it, Job chapter 13, verse 15, Job says this, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Right? Job was, was, was willing to trust in God, even 
if God would take his own life. And that's, that, you know, just shines through the kind of faith that Job had in him. And know it or not, God wants to have your faith shine in the same way. Right? He wants your faith to be evident. Uh, which brings us to uh, the fact that these trials show the value that our faith has to God. And in this passage, Peter uh, compares that to gold. Um, I have a slide of gold in case you don't know what gold looks like. <laughs> but uh, we, we think gold is precious, right? Uh, I haven't checked what's the latest, but uh, at some point it was going something like $2,000 or $3,000 per ounce of gold. The value of that uh, may have changed. Uh, we considered gold to be a value, and it is, right? I mean, I wouldn't mind having some of that. It does have value. Um, but uh, if, you, if, if someone gave you an item of gold, um, you may want to test it. Right? Is this really gold? And if so, how pure is it? I think that thing that says 999.9, I think they're claiming that that's 99.99% uh, .99 gold, so very, very pure gold. But uh, not all gold is that pure. In fact, most gold items, like my ring, I think is like 14 or 16 carats, which means it's about 60% gold. Right? So you may want to test just how valuable is this. Um, why? Because gold is so valuable, right? We want to make sure that our, what we think is gold really is gold, right? Um, and so we would test it, and you typically will use heat or fire in combination of chemicals will help you see really how pure your gold is. Well, in this case, trials coming into our lives is what will show the value of our faith, or really how pure our faith is. And the fact that God wants to test our faith in this way shows really how much he values our faith, how valuable our faith is to him. And so I, was, I made myself a list here of why is faith more valuable than gold. Your faith is more valuable than gold, right? Why? Um, one is we see that that's what God is looking for, right? So we might look for gold, Right? When somebody discovered uh, some gold in California, uh, it brought thousands, I think hundreds of thousands of people into that state to look for that gold. Right? When Jesus came into this world, he didn't go to California uh, to look for gold. Right? He went to, to Israel to look for faith, right? because that was the country where he, he tried to cultivate faith. He gave them his word, right? and he did his miracles. Right? He was trying to, to, to create a place on the earth where he might find faith. Uh, strangely enough, he didn't find a lot of faith in Israel. It was mostly the Gentiles that he comes across where we see him admiring uh, that faith. One, one of the uh, neat stories about it is in Matthew 15. And there it says, uh, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he left Israel, went into what is today Lebanon, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. This woman had a daughter who was very sick. 
She was demon-possessed, and so she came to Jesus believing that Jesus had the power to heal her daughter. But he, Jesus, answered her not a word, and his disciples came, came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus does not give her a lot of reason to believe in him, right, in how he answers uh, her seeking after him. Then she came and worshipped him. She, she worships in front of him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So again, he's, he seems to be really discouraging. This woman keeps coming after him, and he's like, go away, go away. He has a purpose in doing that. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. I'm just asking for a very small thing from you. I know you can do a lot more than heal my daughter. I just want you to heal my daughter. Then Jesus answered and said to her, Oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Jesus was always ready to heal her daughter, but he wanted to bring that faith out. Right? He, wanted, he wanted everyone to be able to see it. And so Jesus is seeking for faith on the earth, including your faith and my faith. <clears throat> so that's number one. Jesus came into this world looking for faith. God looks for faith. Uh, second, um, gold. Um, we, we, we do, one of the reasons we value gold so much is because of its staying power. Gold is a noble metal, which means it doesn't tend to react with other chemicals, which means it'll probably stay gold. A lot of materials will change, like iron will get rusted, right, because it's reactive. It reacts with the oxygen or water in the air, and it, instead of being a shiny metal, which iron actually would be, uh, it becomes dull. Right? And eventually, the rust will keep penetrating through and will completely destroy the iron. Not so with gold. Pure gold does not react with water or oxygen. There's very few things gold reacts with. So it actually has a staying power. But in this passage, it says gold that perishes. As much of a staying power that gold has, it will not survive the coming of Christ. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes, the very elements are going to melt with the heat. They're going to be dissolved, uh, not, not just become liquid, but literally completely be gone. Such is the heat. Such will be the, uh, the change. Really, th this whole world is going to be destroyed, right? And God will create a new earth and a new heaven. So the gold that we have today will actually not survive. It will perish. Not so. Our faith, on the opposite, its value will increase. Today, People might look at you and me and say, you believe in Jesus, but so what? You know, it doesn't really amount to much. I have a million dollars. Do you have a million dollars? No, I have my faith in the Lord Jesus. You know what? Your faith in the Lord Jesus will count for eternity, right? It says here it will be for, for praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When, when Jesus gives his rewards when he comes, he will reward us for our faith. Why? I don't know, because he wants to, right? The Bible says he will reward us for our faith. And so your faith has an eternal value. Gold does not have an eternal value. You will lose. Whatever gold, whatever money, whatever possessions you have in this world, 
will be worthless, right, when Jesus comes back. Not your faith. Your faith will be more valued than it was ever before when Jesus comes back. Uh, third, and, and this may sound a little bit funny, but as gold is essential for the world, faith is essential for our relationship with God. This world cannot get away without gold. Now, granted, we don't like carrying gold around, so the gold sits in a bank somewhere, but it was used, at least in the past, as a basis for the value of money, right? And we, and we need to use money in this world. You won't get very far without money in this world. You needed to go buy food, to go buy gas, you know, to buy a car, to buy a house, right? So we do need gold in this world. Um, but faith is essential for our relationship with God, right? Which is more important than this world. It says in this passage, whom having not seen, you love. You love the Lord Jesus without seeing him, meaning you love him by faith, right? You believe what the Bible says about him, that he first loved you and he gave his life for you. And the Bible says we love because he first loved us, right? That's by faith. It's by faith that you love the Lord Jesus. It says, though, now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice in joy inexpressible and full of glory. Uh, it's by faith, by believing, right? We don't see him, but because we believe him, we can rejoice in the hope that's laid before us. You have to have faith. You, you just can't be a Christian without faith. You cannot have a relationship with God without faith. And finally, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith is necessary for salvation. You must believe the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Right? You cannot be saved without faith. And so no wonder that faith is so valuable to God, and he wants to expose it through trials coming into our lives. Okay. Uh, finally, Peter uh, encourages us um, through the scriptures, uh, verses 10 through, through 12, uh, really, um, uh, Peter uses the scripture to, as an evidence for the reality of our salvation. How do we know it's true? How do we know that it's all true? Uh, well, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. So uh, we have it in the Bible. Right? The prophets wrote down right, what God told them, and it was all uh, recorded in the Scripture. If you have a Bible in front of you, right, that's the product of the prophets. And these writings date from before the times of Christ. When Peter was writing this to believers, right, uh, that would be the first century, maybe you know, 10, 20, 30 years after Jesus came. But they had in their hands copies of the Bible or the Old Testament that predated Christ, and they knew it, right? I mean, some of them remembered reading the verses before Jesus ever appeared, right? And yet the prophets are clearly speaking of him, right? And so they could say, yeah, everything that we know of him was actually written beforehand in the Scripture. And it gives us assurance, Right? that our salvation is real because it was spoken of by the prophets. They told us before he came right, that he would come. Uh, second, 
And this may seem a little bit strange, but the message was incomprehensible to the ones who delivered it to us. Right? It says uh, that they searched carefully, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They couldn't quite understand because, you know, here's was, you know, you're telling me about the Messiah's suffering, but you're telling me about the Messiah ruling the earth. You know, how does it work? <laughs> it doesn't seem to fit. It's one or the other, right? Is the Messiah going to die on the cross? Or is he going to rule the earth? Which one? Both just don't compute, right? And, uh, and it's, it's the very fact that the message was incomprehensible to them that it was evidence there was a greater intelligence behind them that was producing it. Right? Mankind would not have produced the message of the gospel. Right? We're told that it's foolishness to this world. Right? The world can't understand what it is you Christians believe. It doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, because it's not the product of the human mind. Right? It's the product of the divine mind. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Whereas the heaven are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's not surprising we have a message that's difficult for our mind to wrap around. It's an evidence that it's a product of the divine mind. Uh, third, uh, the prophets realized they were ministering to us rather than to themselves. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, to those who have preached the gospel to you. What does that mean? Well, each prophet had like a puzzle piece, right? Or maybe several puzzle pieces, but not the complete picture, right? But today, we have all the writings of the scriptures. We see how all the things that the prophets wrote fit together, right? And that's, again, it's an evidence that God was working behind the scriptures, right? For the fact that something on the order of 40 authors wrote over a period of 1,500 years, and they were each from a different background. Some spoke different languages, right? They had different roles in the world, from a shepherd to a king, right? And yet all these pieces come together and give us one picture of the gospel. Again, shows the hands of God behind the writing of the scripture. And then finally, we're told here that they did it by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels design, desire to look into. Uh, the gospel came with miraculous signs. Jesus came doing miracles. His apostles spreading the message did miracles. Some of the uh, audience that received this letter may have seen miracles performed by the apostles. Right? Evidence of the Holy Spirit, the fact that this was not a message of man. Um, even in the Old Testament, there were miracles that happened to confirm this was really God speaking. Angels were showing up right, at the birth of Christ. Right? Angels delivering message. Angels rejoicing in heaven. Again, all of that was evidence that this was a message from God. When we are trusting in 
God's message of salvation in the Bible, we have a very high level of confidence. This is the word of God given to us, promising us salvation if we believe the gospel, because that's what God has said. Okay, what's, what's our takeaway uh, from this message? No, number one is, I know many of you are going through trials, right? And I hope it's some encouragement that God knew you were going to go through trials. And God tells us we're going to go through trials and that he has a purpose in trials. He wants your faith to be exposed by your trials. He wants you to continue to trust him. What, is, what should I do when I'm in a trial? Do exactly the same thing you were doing, right? Try, continue to trust in God. Continue to follow God. Stay in the place where God put you. <laughs> do the things God wants you to do. The trial doesn't mean you need to change anything. God wants to see how much you're willing to hold on to him and to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, you delight in our faith so much that uh, you're willing to bring us into a situation that that faith becomes even more evident. We thank you for the grounds we can have for our faith. We have your word and uh, how solid your word is for us to believe in it. And we thank you that uh, you give us a hope, something to look forward to in heaven, uh, inheritance uh, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Lord, we ask for your continued encouragement to us. We ask for your encouragement to every believer here going through different trials that you'll come in a special way. Assure them of your love. Grant them your power so that you could be glorified in their life through their faith, we pray in Jesus' name.